entering the Freedom Hut. The return of Russia collusion madness is upon us, my friends. Also, we could have a verdict any hour now in the Weinstein trial. We'll talk about that. That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. It got very big ratings. And you know what? Mini Mike didn't do well last time. I was going to send him a note saying, it's not easy doing what I do, is it? Not easy. It's not easy, Mike. Not easy for any of them. Now, Mike didn't do too well. He went way down. It's all right. Mini Mike. How about Klobuchar? Did you see her? She choked. She choked. She couldn't breathe. Alfred E. Newman looked at her and said something slightly derogatory. And she said, are you accusing me of being dumb? Who would make a statement like that? Because that's really what he was doing, but he doesn't want to say that. No, no, how about that? Are you saying I'm dumb? That was the end of her campaign in my book. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Happy Friday. Much to get to. Oh, my, President Trump's overview of the Democratic debate. (laughs) Mini Mike, not getting a lot of love from the president, that's for sure. Two guys who know each other reasonably well, from what I understand from the past. And uh, the president is a reminder here, is reminding everybody that these Democrats, when when one Democrat has to stand up and face off against Donald Trump, just think about what you saw on that stage and what we see from Trump night after night. Do, do we really think any of these Democrat candidates have a serious shot of sounding serious against Donald Trump? Sounding like that they sounding like they should unseat this president, remove him from office at a time of perhaps unprecedented American prosperity. Certainly capable of making that argument right now, given all given all the numbers uh, that we've seen. And there is a clear desperation. I've been saying this to you for a while, a desperation among Democrats. What are they going to do now that they don't have that Obama-like figure who is inspirational to Democrats or that Clinton-like figure who's just the the absolute machine of the Democratic Party? They don't have either of those kinds of candidates right now. They have a lot of also-rants. They have a lot of, oh, yeah. In a few years, we'll say that person, Amy Klobuchar. Yeah, she ran for president a few years ago, didn't she? Didn't she? Was that her? And Elizabeth Warren's going all out in the last, the last touchdown of the game to try and score one for the home team. Team Warren. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. She's desperately trying to position herself as the anti-Bloomberg candidate. And she scored some points against Bloomberg. But as I've been saying to you, Bloomberg's whole game plan, and he's got, he's paying for the smartest people to be crunching the numbers for him and looking at this. He certainly has the bank book to do it, right? Bloomberg is banking it all on Super Tuesday. He's not even on the ballot in Nevada. And we'll see. We'll see how Mayor Mike does in big states like California. 
We'll see what kind of delegate count he racks up. I, I'm I'm sorry. I don't think I understand that Republicans now are having some fun at, at Bloomberg's expense. Understandably so. He was up there like, uh, can I just pay someone else to just be here instead of me? I just uh, don't I have I have a polo match to go to. What am I doing here? You know. He did not look like somebody who had the fire in the belly for the debate, but he's got the bank book for the presidency. That much is for sure. And so the Democrats now see this field and the smarter ones recognize that the options are a a cobbled together Democrat candidate, you know, sort of like the El Cid at the end of the movie where El Cid has has died and, and they just put El Cid on the horse and have him do the final charge against the. Uh, the Spanish uh, Muslim forces, the Moors in southern Spain, right, that that they they rush El Cid out on the horse at the end of the movie. Uh, that's kind of what they're going to try to do here with whatever Democrat campaign is left standing at the end of this, unless it's Bernie Sanders. And then they have to accept that they've gone with a radical. I mean, Bernie Sanders is a radical. I don't know why anybody would even pretend that that's not obvious. He's a radical. For American politics, he's far outside of the mainstream. All these polls you've seen about how people like Medicare for All, that's because people are lied to constantly about what Medicare for All would mean. It's also a reminder, we see this, and I'll get into this later in the show, about criminal justice, and we see this now with the economy. When things are good, people often forget why things were not so good before. When you've lost a connection to what bad governance really feels like to you day to day, it's a lot easier to say, yeah, you know, maybe maybe we don't want to put anybody in prison. You know, maybe we just want to empty out the prisons except for the very, very, very worst people. Or, you know, maybe a little more socialism isn't going to slow things down and make us poor. You know, redistributing some wealth might make me feel good. Well, if you grew up in a major U.S. city, as I did in the 1990s, you don't want to go back to what crime was like then and that constant sense of fear, that foreboding that was really omnipresent in a lot of American cities during my youth. I mean, and I, I remember what that was like. Uh, also, those of us that remember the early years, particularly of the Obama administration after the Great Recession, when we were being told, yeah, America's best days financially are behind it. You're not going to make that much money. You know, this is just deal with it. The government's going to have to do more for you. We, we are now 10 years beyond that. And we're being told, yeah, just we're going to raise taxes on everybody and put the government in charge of a lot of stuff. It is because we forget what we have learned in the past that people like Bernie Sanders could even be on that debate stage. Never mind the Democratic frontrunner. But the savvier Democrat elites recognize that a Sanders candidacy would be most likely a Democrat party uh, driving off the cliff. It would be a very, very bad thing. And with that, we see something that I've been telling you now for weeks. And I almost had producer Mark, although I didn't want to give him extra work late at night when these stories first broke. Those of you who listen to me every day know that I've been saying, just wait, they need another Trump removal narrative. They're going to they're gonna find another one, and they're probably going to, what have I been saying? They're going to return to Russia collusion. Even producer Mark knows this is a prediction I've gotten right. They're going to return to Russia collusion. It's just they, they have this emotional need. There's this space in their brain that must be filled 
with Russia, Russia, Russia. And that might have seemed like a, like a somewhat extreme prediction a week or two ago when I first started. Right after impeachment, what did I say? They're going to they got to come up with another thing and you're going to see the return of Russia collusion. They're going to bring it back. Here we are, folks. Crazy Democrats back in action with the Russia collusion narrative. New York Times has this piece out that's getting a lot of play from all the other networks that are now using it as their jump off point for their own stories about this, that Russia is trying to help Trump. Russia is interfering on Trump's behalf in the 2020 election already. This is the story. This is what we're being told. This is also very clear signaling to all of us that they are terrified at the prospect of Trump winning. Because remember, if Russia interferes and then a Democrat wins, well, they'll be obviously very happy about the Democrat defeating Trump. But a lot of people who approach this using their faculties of reason and not allowing propagandized emotion to take over would say, hold on a second. I guess that Russia uh, that Russia interference stuff wasn't really that powerful because the Democrat won anyway. Remember, that was the initial assessment of Obama and all of his top people in the White House. They didn't want they didn't do anything about Russian interference and they didn't care about it until after Hillary lost. Then all of a sudden it became a major issue of national security. But you're seeing the machinery of Russia Trump hysteria kicking into gear once again. It is as predictable, at least for me, as it is crazy. CNN here with its number one story. We call it uh, the carousel on websites where they put big photos up there for you to click on. The number one story in the carousel at CNN, why Putin would want Trump to win in 2020. Analysis they have written in a little thing down below. This is propaganda. First of all, Trump has been an aggressive opponent of Russia in areas where it makes sense to be one. The only area in which there is a real place to criticize Trump about Russia is the way that he speaks personally about Vladimir Putin, which I think he does in part because he doesn't want to antagonize a world leader that he's going to have to deal with. There is no Russia is not Iran. It's not Venezuela. You can't just build a wall around Russia and pretend it doesn't exist. It's too big. It's too important. It's also, though, not a real threat to us, which is where the media gets completely out of whack. But if you look at Ukraine, if you look at the additional sanctions, if you look at things that the, the Trump administration has done against Russia, it's not possible to make the case that Trump is weaker on Russia than Obama was. Trump is clearly stronger. It is, in fact, the Trump administration that had the United States military in an effort to protect our Kurdish allies in Syria call-in airstrikes that, call, that killed up to 200 Russian paramilitaries. That's the kind of thing that would really upset a country that you were supposed to be buddy-buddy with, right? Russia didn't challenge him on this, didn't do anything to retaliate. Trump was willing to send the Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukrainian anti-Russian uh, fighters, right? Ukrainian National Army fighting against Russian-backed paramilitaries. Obama was explicitly unwilling to do that because he didn't want to antagonize Russia too much. Well, gee, who's really in Russia's pocket? Remember the conversation between Obama and Medvedev 
after my election, I'll have more flexibility. That's just an admission on, on an open mic that he didn't realize was going to pick up what he was saying that, yeah, once I fool enough, fool enough silly Americans, you know, enough low information voters, then I'll get then I'll be able to do what I want here with Russia stuff. So don't worry about it. I got you covered. That's what he was saying. Oh, but Trump is the bad guy on Russia. What does interference in the election even mean? Are we now going to pretend that in an era of billions and billions of dollars of domestic spending on media and campaigns and door knocking and the media apparatus that's already out there spewing all of its messages and all of its propaganda for one side or the other, that a couple of dudes sitting in a basement in a Russian you know, FSB facility somewhere are going to be able to come up with a couple of memes that just take over the Internet and that cause one candidate to win, one candidate to lose the election. It's so stupid when you think about it that it's hard to imagine any any adult who has ever read a newspaper and can can read would think that this is a real plan. But this is now what we're being this is now what we're being told is happening in the country, that there's already Russian interference in this election, too, on Trump's behalf. And can't you just see how this is this is hedging? This is this is hedging the bets emotionally for Democrats. That's what's going on here. They recognize that the candidates that they've put forward, unlikely, I'm not saying they can't, because it's going to be a very narrow race. Remember, this is this is fighting over two yards of a football field, really, between Democrats and, Democrats and Republicans in the presidential election. Don't forget that. This is very much on the margins. There are a lot of states that we already know how they're going to vote. We already know what's going to happen. It's only in a handful of states that the contest will really be fought. And to think that the Russians, through their version of political micro-targeting, would be able to flip one or the other just with Internet memes? I mean, if this is the case, the biggest news organizations in the world should pay whatever they have to to hire these Russian, you know, these Russian troll farms or these Russian meme makers because they're better at American political propaganda than the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in this country who are constantly doing the same thing. But one of the great tricks that the media has pulled off, and by great I mean powerful but certainly not good, is removing any sense of proportionality and any sense of judgment in what they will report. As I've said to you before, Russian interference in the election, when you look at what was really done, the amount of spending, the amount of memes, the amount of contact, and you then put that against, this is for the 2016 election, you put that against all of the ongoing political debate and effort and media time, everything that's going into the election here at home, this would be like saying that by pouring a cup of water into the ocean, you know, by, let's say by pouring a cup of lemonade into the ocean, you have changed the composition of the ocean and then reporting that everywhere. That is a technically true statement. By pouring a cup of lemonade into the ocean, you have changed what was in that ocean before. But would any normal human being say, whoa, we got a lemonade ocean now? That's what the Democrats have done with Russia-Trump uh, interference. Pretended that something that is, that is quite honestly irrelevant to the voting patterns of any American, that is irrelevant to the outcome of the election, is somehow this, this powerful, this, this un- unstoppable, unbelievably effective political interference. 
No one really thinks that's the case. But if you're desperate enough because you've been saying that Donald Trump would be a terrible president and he's actually been a really good president, if you're desperate enough because you keep saying the adults are going to be in charge of this uh, of the government when the Democrats come into power and then the American people see the clown show that is the Democrat field right now. Yeah, I guess you'd rather believe that that Russia is going to deliver the election to Trump again. They're already setting the stage for this. They're already trying to tell you that no matter what the election results are, they will claim that Trump, even in re-election, is illegitimate. And I promise you, I promise you, mark me saying this right now, there will be media outlets that claim and pundits and Democrats that Russia gave Trump the 2020 election too. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Just want to make sure, team, as you're listening to this, that you subscribe to the Buck Sexton Show wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, This is a a Friday all-hands-on-deck request. Please do subscribe if you have not already. The Buck Sexton Show, available anywhere you listen to podcasts, the Apple Podcast Store, also, you can listen on the iHeartRadio app. We'd love to see those numbers get a big jump going into Super Tuesday and going into March. So please do subscribe to the Buck Saxon Show and also check us out on Pluto Channel 248, the first. Download the Pluto TV app. It's totally free. It's a great way to see what's going on in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard to come up with the words for what's going on right now. The fact that all that we've been through, the hell of the last couple of years, the Russians interfering, according to 17 of our intelligence agencies in the 2016 election. And here they go again, as if they can just get away with the robbery again, daylight robbery again, with the president of the United States helping them to keep it secret, helping to keep it secret instead of trying to stop them. A normal president would have stopped the Russians from what they're up to again in this election. Stop the Russians. Thanks, Chris Matthews. How? How exactly is Donald Trump supposed to stop the Russians? Make an angry phone. There's already sanctions. There's already a very frosty relationship between the two countries diplomatically. And it seems like Democrats want to push us closer and closer to open war with Russia. Nothing is enough for them. But what is the president supposed to do? They have a special component now of the intelligence community that looks specifically at election interference. Somehow that component, this is from the New York Times story, that person assigned that role under acting DNI McGuire, who is going to be replaced soon with Richard Grinnell. And I want to get to that, by the way, about the Grinnell replacement as DNI. He's been the U.S. ambassador to Germany, been doing a very good job there. Um, But because he is viewed as somebody who is favorable to Donald Trump, oh, it's terrible what's going on in the intelligence community. I was in the intelligence community. I still have a lot of friends who are inside. Some of them are actually quite senior now. I can give you a little more of the reality view of what it means to have Richard Grinnell as the director of national intelligence, especially given what we know about some of the more recent heads of these various agencies. But on on this this story from The New York Times that got all of this attention about interfering in the elect interference in the election from the Russians. I mean, this all comes from a New York Times report that says, Lawmakers are warned that Russia is meddling to re-elect Trump. A classified briefing to House members is said to have angered the president, who complained that Democrats would weaponize the disclosure. You don't say 
Notice how the way this is framed is that Trump's the bad guy because some people, Democrats, leaked information from a classified briefing in order to damage the president. And then when the president says, I mean, guys, they're leaking classified. That's a felony, by the way. They're le- Oh, are we going to see any prosecutions about them? Yeah. Right after we see a prosecution for the senior Obama appointee that I'm pretty sure was the one who leaked General Flynn's phone call to David Ignatius at The Washington Post to get him in trouble so that he would be removed as national security advisor and prosecuted and ruined. Right after we get that leaker, which we're not going to get, the deep state protects its own. So this is the story that was printed in The Times. Uh, On February 13th, intelligence officials warned House lawmakers that Russia was interfering in the 2020 campaign to try to get President Trump reelected. Five people familiar with the matter said a disclosure to Congress that angered Trump. You know why one of the reasons why Trump was angry? This was reportedly told to members of Congress before it was told to the president. That's a problem. The people in the intelligence community, their chain of command is to the president of the United States. Why wasn't he informed of this first? Especially if he's then going to be criticized for not taking action. They knew that Shifty Schiff or one of his little minions would run out and leak this stuff as soon as possible. They knew that. But there's another part of this that you should know. It's really just an assessment And there's now additional reporting from some other people who have looked at this to say that this is the judgment of somebody within the intelligence community and that it is being improperly framed by The New York Times to make it seem more definitive than it is. And that in essence, what they've really seen, what they've really seen intelligence of. And remember, intelligence, I used to do this, unlike the other radio hosts you'll hear talking about this today or unlike the other people you see on TV for the most part, with very few exceptions. I did this work. I did the analytic side of intelligence assessments. I worked on inter-community projects that were in all the different agencies get in. I wrote for the President's Daily Briefing. I used to do this for a living. And let me tell you that there are a lot, a lot of gray areas and a lot of judgment calls. And the intel community, when it comes to judgment calls, gets it wrong over and over without any consequence. You're actually inside the bureaucracy of the intelligence community. This is the truth. You are more likely to face sanctions, more likely to see reprisals. If you are the lone voice standing up against the consensus opinion, even if and when you are proven right, you are more likely to get in trouble for that than being somebody who you know, rams through some consensus, quote, consensus opinion that's dead wrong. If you stand in the way of the bureaucratic consensus, you will get crushed, even if you are right. That's the way these institutions work. If you rush that through and turns out, oh, whoopsie, you know, invaded the wrong country, bombed the wrong building, you know, whatever it may be, as long as you made your colleagues in the intel community feel heard and feel good in that process, you'd never get in any trouble. The bureaucracy is the ultimate self-licking ice cream cone. If you're taking care of the bureaucracy, it'll take care of you. It's the way it works. So that there was an assessment from somebody in the intel community saying that they believe that Donald Trump is a favorite of 
the Russians to win re-election because he's a deal maker and they might be able to create some kind of, you know, transactional policy, transactional relationship with him versus not knowing what they're dealing with with the Democrats. Is that is, is that nefarious? Think about that for a moment. The Russians and I don't know what, what sources and methods they're basing this on, of course, and this is all effectively hearsay. I mean, this is all somebody who says they heard from somebody who was in this meeting and they're giving their version of what someone else's analysis is. I mean, this is like a big game of telephone, but it's all it's the biggest news story in the country right now because that's how propaganda works. You've got to start with a grain of truth and you magnify it into something else. So now when you look at this, isn't it much more understandable that if you're doing an analytic assessment from inside the intelligence community about Russian intention in the U.S. 2020 election, wouldn't it be normal for the Russian, wouldn't it, wouldn't it, when I say normal, wouldn't it be your expectation that the Russians would say, without even knowing who the Democrat candidate is going to be, well, at least with Trump, we know we can, we can talk to him and he'll, he'll engage with us. You know, who knows what that lunatic uh, Joe Biden will do? Well, they probably have a pretty good sense of Biden from the past. But, you know, who knows what that lunatic uh, Elizabeth Warren will do or they don't know anything about Amy Klobuchar, right? The idea being they just don't really know, with the exception of, I mean, Bernie probably still has a DACA somewhere in the Soviet Union slash Russia. I mean, it's Russia now, but you know what I'm saying. He visited the Soviet Union back in the day. DACA, by the way, is a summer house. David Harsanyi had a great joke about that. He's like, his cabin in Vermont, doesn't he call it a DACA? Uh, that's the Russian nobility and the Russian elite. That's what they call their summer homes. It's just a little cabin. Costs about $600,000. How many of you have a little cabin that's your third domicile that costs you that costs $600,000? I'm just wondering. I'm guessing not that many because that would put you in the 1%. And this show is heard by hundreds of thousands of people across the country. So, yeah, some of you, I'm sure, some of you are like, Buck, I've got a, I've got a $3 million, you know, summer home or something but for the most part i don't think people running around like my third home is worth 600 grand and that's not a that's not any indication of wealth that's an indication of wealth but the russians were mere it seems like this analysis is just that the russians are uncertain of who the democrat is and how and how much they'll be able to work with whatever that whoever that person is and donald trump is someone that they is now a known commodity that's really it that 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 seems to be a more clear interpretation of what's going on. Oh, and the Russians are going to play some games again and meddle in the elections and have some level of plausible deniability because it worked incredibly well for them the last time. Because of the Democrats' fixation on this issue, because of their obsession with Russia-Trump collusion, the Russians look at this like, wow, we were able to turn America inward on itself, to turn American factionalism into, uh, you know, to, to turn it up to overdrive. So that the Americans are all at each other's throats, which gives Russia a freer hand on its policy objectives. I mean, the Russians, through very, very little spending and little action and no risk to any of their personnel, were able to create a narrative in this country where the, the loudest voices, the most prominent, powerful, wealthy Democrats in America have been running around calling the president a traitor for years and saying that he sold out our country. He didn't really win the election and he's doing Putin's bidding. I mean, this this is a propaganda coup. This is a, a disinformation operation for the Russians in this last election that blows away what the KGB was able to do in the past in this regard. I mean, this was stunning. So, yeah, of course, the Russians are probably going to play games again. What are we going to do? Ratchet up sanctions? Sure. 
We're not going to go to war with Russia over Facebook posts. I know the Democrats seem to think that, that that's we've got to be able to threaten anything. Oh, the sanctity of our elections. This is absurd. And any normal person could see this and say, so what? I mean, Russia's creating sock puppets. You know, the Internet's the Wild West. You know, Twitter, Facebook, people post crazy stuff all the time. Lots of people are lying. Political campaigns are lying. Politicians are lying. Russians are lying. And they're just trying to, you know, sow a little more discord. And the Democrat response to that is to take that intent of sowing discord and just explode it. I mean, just just go with it as much as, as anybody could ever imagine. You want to talk about doing Russia's bidding? The Democrats do Russia's bidding every time they parrot this propaganda about how Trump is is a Putin stooge and that Russia stole the last election and Russian interference should keep us all on the edge of our seats. They always say that Trump is playing to Putin's hands. The great irony here is the Democrats playing to Putin's hands all the time, and they continue to. We've gone through the Russia-Trump collusion special counsel. They went scorched earth against everybody in Trump's orbit. And what do they find at the end? Nothing. Nothing. After all that, and now they're bringing it back. These people are nuts. I, I say it, I mean it. I mean, there's an absurdity now at the heart of the Democrat, Democrat national uh, narrative, their 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 identity, their sense of who their party is. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. And I'm hoping that the intelligence professional is going to continue to do their best to pr- provide the intelligence and the analysis that the executive branch as well as the legislative branch needs. Uh, they need to try to do it despite the headwinds that they're feeling coming from the White House. Now, a lot of these individuals, I'm sure, are being intimidated and now are going to be pulling some punches because they don't want to be shown the door. It's one thing for the senior professionals to be axed. But are they, is the White House going to start going down further now and trying to remove intelligence professionals who are just trying to do their job, but are going to face the wrath of a very vindictive uh, uh, Donald Trump. So what's your message then to your former colleagues who are still fighting the fight inside the intelligence services? Carry out those responsibilities that you swore an oath to do, um, because they have that very solemn responsibility, whether you're intelligence or a diplomat or in law enforcement, you need to carry out your responsibilities with the greatest integrity and honesty and let the chips fall where they may. I would tell them not to go to the door, not to leave, continue to do their work the best they can. That's former Obama CIA director appointee John Brennan, who is a sanctimonious moron. Uh, He also tweeted out today, we are now in a full-blown national security crisis. By trying to prevent the flow of intelligence to Congress, Trump is abetting a Russian covert operation to keep him in office for Moscow's interests, not America's. That's what the guy, the guy who just gave that whole speech about, oh, just do your jobs and your oath and give the best analysis and stay where you are. That's a clarion call to the deep state because they all know what this guy really wants. They know what he's really about. He's saying stay where you are and do what you got to do to hurt Trump going into reelection because this is what he's putting out on Twitter. A full-blown national security crisis. What? I, I, I told you what the story is here. Does anyone think that any of this is a full-blown national security crisis? That's the way that, that a normal human being would describe this? Uh, it's, it's just amazing that they have learned nothing. They have learned nothing.
quote, this is from the New York Times piece, they have made more creative use of Facebook and other social media. Rather than impersonating Americans as they did in 2016, Russian operatives are working to get Americans to repeat disinformation. That strategy gets around social media companies' rules that prohibit inauthentic speech. To repeat disinformation? What, what disinformation is going to really have this impact on the election? After the Russians are working from servers in the United States rather than abroad, knowing that American intelligence agencies—oh, and the Russians are working from servers in the United States, knowing that American intelligence agencies are prohibited from operating inside the country. Yeah, but the FBI and DHS are not, so this is, like, idiotic. Russian hackers have also infiltrated Iran's cyber warfare unit, perhaps with the intent of launching attacks that would look like they were coming from Tehran, the National Security Agency has warned. All right. Um, we have— uh, tremendous cyber capabilities in this country. And we can know, we can figure out usually where these attacks are coming from. But keep in mind that when they talk about attacks, it's things like <laughs> lock her up memes. I mean, that's that's really what we're talking about here. This, this, all this, all the propaganda and all this other stuff is like the, the media is so upset because the Russians are creating their own state-driven media uh, media effort Covert media effort, sure, to influence American opinions. I mean, do we really think that there's a world in which we're walled off from foreign governments trying to influence what Americans think? Just look at some of the recent stories about the billions of dollars flowing from countries like China and Saudi Arabia, China, to American universities and colleges. Anybody think that that might have some influence on what kind of teaching is being done in the, you know, in the Asian Studies Department or what kind of teaching is being done in the Middle East Studies Department? Oh, of course it is. What professors get tenure? What sort of forums are held? All this stuff. Yeah, you, you think that at Georgetown and at Harvard and some of these schools, with all the Saudi money they're taking, they're about to have a, a really in-depth course on the oppression and tyranny and Islamofascism of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia? I don't think so. But you don't see people, oh, look at the interference in, in educating the youth and the propagandizing. We live in a very complicated world, my friends, with lots and lots of sources of information. That's never going to change. This is a delusion from the left. This is crazy talk. And to say there's a full-blown national security crisis, and to say that Trump is doing something bad here because he's annoyed because he knows exactly this is all it's going to be. Any interference from any Russian is a, it, it leaked from someone in the intelligence community having to do with our elections. Front page news story, biggest thing in the country. It's because the left has lost its mind. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Team, I haven't talked to you about Harvey Weinstein in a while. Probably since the earliest days of the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein was one of the first individuals to be accused in that, that slew of, of allegations that came out of men who had used their powerful, privileged positions to either coerce or to sexually assault and, and criminally violate women depends on the specifics of the case, right? Charlie Rose, Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, all these different figures that were caught in the Me Too movements, uh, caught in the Me Too movement's focus. And Weinstein is in the midst of a trial. It's been going on for a few weeks here in New York City. 
and it's a trial that could see him sent to prison for life. He faces a maximum count of life in prison for the allegations against him. And even if he were, just to put this out there, even if he were to be acquitted or if there were a hung jury here in New York City, he's also facing various sexual assault charges in California. So this is not a these are not federal charges. These are are, uh, state and local charges in New York City. So the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is handling this. Now, I've I've been reading up on this case uh, a bit because it's more interesting in terms of the legal angles of this than I think a lot of people would have initially anticipated. For one, there is a woman who is alleging that he raped her back in the 1990s, which is beyond the statute of limitations. But for Harvey Weinstein to be charged, to be convicted of the top count against him, uh, which is a which is essentially sexually predatory behavior, this woman's account, even though. He cannot be criminally charged with what she is saying, and she's also alleging a rape, can be used by the jury to determine whether Weinstein has engaged in sexually predatory behavior, effectively creating a scheme for his own, you know, setting up. It's almost like premeditated murder. This this charge is effectively premeditated rape through uh, creating situations that will make that make it more likely that he'll be able to rape a woman, right? That's what's going on here. I'd never seen that before in a trial. I've never heard of that before. So it was something that I had learned about as a charge. I didn't know that you could have someone who's unable to bring their own charge like this this woman, but that's used to assess the depth and the uh, the depth of the charge, the charges that are up against them. There are two women in particular uh, who, although a lot of women have been testifying at this trial, two women have come forward to say that Harvey Weinstein uh, either forcibly raped one or raped another in a particular kind of of sexual exchange that I won't describe on the air. Um, And he faces life. He faces up to 25 years or he faces up to four years, I think, are the different possibilities here. As we're waiting to see, the jury has been out. You know, the phrase, the jury is out. The jury's been out for three days already. Which means that they're thinking about this. You know, when a jury comes back quickly, for especially when you're the accused, you usually in a case like this, you'd think, "Oh, they 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 think the guy's definitely guilty." Now, that's just a a gut feeling people usually have with a fast jury verdict. This one's taking a bit more time, and they're asking a lot of questions. Going back to the judge, the jury foreman is asking a lot of questions of Harvey Weinstein. I'm sorry about the Harvey Weinstein case. They're not asking Harvey Weinstein anything. I want to just put out there that you don't see this talked about very much. Harvey Weinstein was a close friend of the Clintons, a close friend of the Obamas, raised a lot of money for the Clintons. I mean, I bet he was on Hillary Clinton's speed dial for the last 20 years. So here's a guy who is at the center, not just of the Hollywood power apparatus, one of the most powerful producers in Hollywood. Remember, producers are the ones that... You know, they get the movie made and they get to determine who's going to be in the movie. And they have a lot of authority, a lot of power in a business where there's many, many desperate people, particularly desperate, young, attractive women trying to break into the business. 
but Weinstein was at the center of the Hollywood power apparatus as well as the Democrat power apparatus. And you don't hear that. That's not a part of the focus. I just think it's so interesting how the Me Too movement, it's about bad men. But when you look at it overwhelmingly, it's about bad men who are clearly Democrats and very connected into the Democrat, uh, the Democrat power, political power apparatus in one way or another. You know, this is uh, this is where you see a, a change or, or a, a omissions in the in the media narrative about what's going on here. It's always just Harvey Weinstein's a monster. Now, I'll just tell you from my assessment, I, I've, I've read many articles about this. I haven't had the time to go through all of the court transcripts because it's been a trial going on for a month and I, I got a life and I got other things I got to focus on. So just to be clear, there are some reporters who have been there all day, every day and you know, you know, just essentially telling the public what went on that day. I've been following it in bits and pieces as I can. Here's what I take away from it. For one, they've completely wiped away that Harvey Weinstein is a close friend of the of of the Clintons, specifically a major donor and bundler for the Democratic Party. And I think that, let's be honest, that helped him get away with this stuff for as many years as he did. He was connected. In fact, one of the women who's one of his accusers said that when he got on the phone, I believe it was with Hillary Clinton, that added to her sense of, I can't cross this guy. Look at how connected he is. Look at how powerful he is. Now, it's not a criminal thing, but it's just a perception about how he's connected to the very top. And when you're connected to the Clintons, as we know, very bad things can happen. But also, if you're connected to the Clintons, you can get away with a whole lot of stuff. You can get away with a whole lot of stuff. Did Epstein kill himself, by the way? So... Hillary Clinton, close friend of Harvey Weinstein, and that gets pushed aside in all this. But then you look at the charges and the way that this case is being constructed, and I can tell you this. Harvey Weinstein's a bad guy. We, we, that's, that's absolutely clear. And do I think that Harvey Weinstein probably, in some of these cases, transgressed criminally against women? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. But if you're going to look at it charge by charge and determine, you know, there's a huge range here. Could, could go away for four years for criminal sexual misconduct. Could go away for life in prison for predatory rape. Right. So this is a huge range of what the, the consequences for him could be. And you have to look at the charges one by one, the allegations. And something has come up here that is there is a real debate around. And it has to do with uh, some of the women that are alleging that he that he raped them, which remember, rape is a I'm just saying this to put this conversation in the proper context. We all know rape is a, a heinous and violent crime. It is a felony and one for which people can go to prison for up to 25 years in New York. So rape is, you know, very, very serious. I mean, in terms of our criminal code, other than, you know, crimes of, of violence and, and sexual crimes against children and murder. There's nothing more. There's nothing more serious. And so then when you hear some of these women describing their relationship with Harvey Weinstein. You start to ask some questions like, hold on a second, you're, you're telling this court. And I read these exchanges. I read the most important uh, noteworthy exchanges between the, the key witnesses here. And they're claiming that Harvey Weinstein, some of these women will claim that Harvey Weinstein forcibly raped them. And then within days, they're still talking to Harvey Weinstein, saying saying they love they love him or that he makes them feel so special. And 
one woman actually continued to have a sexual so she she says that he raped her and then she had consensual sexual uh, consensual sexual relations with Harvey Weinstein many 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 times after that this is a uh, complicated because it's very hard for a lot of us who approach this with in good faith and wanting to protect women and knowing that all decent men feel a particular and solemn obligation to protect women. Uh, it's hard for those of us who approach this case with that in mind to see testimony from a woman who claims that someone committed a violent felony against her. And then not only was there a continued sexual relationship afterwards, but one that she sought out and initiated and continued to you know, re request favors from him. And I want to see you and, oh, I love you and, oh, you're so great. I, I think that's very tough. I think that's why this jury is probably sitting there saying, I think it's seven women and five men. Um, I might have that backwards, but I believe it's seven women and five men. I think that's why they're taking some time to think about this, because the the decision here about the degree matters tremendously. I mean, Harvey Weinstein, if they if they convict him on the top count, he's going to he's going to die in prison. He's going to die in prison. So that is a big that, that, that's a big decision. And remember, the standard here is beyond a reasonable doubt for a criminal case. Right. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Does a reasonable person find it doubtful that Harvey Weinstein intentionally, forcibly raped a woman when that woman afterwards continued a relationship with Harvey Weinstein, sought out a sexual relationship with Harvey Weinstein, and showed him continued affection and, and perhaps even love in that over the duration of that. And as she was doing this, she was trying to derive benefit from her, professional benefit from her relationship with Harvey Weinstein. Again, I think Harvey Weinstein's a disgusting slob and a monster, okay? Again, I think Harvey Weinstein probably did rape one or several women, but I'm looking at the specific allegations in the top counts here. I mean, The Nation, a left-wing, you know, commie magazine had a piece from one of its correspondents covering this saying, this guy, he could walk. He could walk. And it could also just be a hung jury, which I think is very possible. I would say hung jury... And hopefully by the time you hear this, we, you know, you, we haven't already had a verdict because uh, then some of this will be moot. But um, I, I, I mean, meaning my hopefully you won't my prediction won't be a uh, past due past its due date on this. I think you're more likely to see a, a hung jury than you are to see a full on acquittal. But this just goes to show you the way that the criminal justice system, the complexities of it and how you just when you put things to a jury, you just don't know. And this this question about about consent and about, uh, you know, what what constitutes a forcible rape, what constitutes professional coercion that wouldn't be criminal, would be unseemly, but for which there would be professional consequences versus criminal consequences for someone, you know, hey, do this for me, you know, do this sexual favor for me and you'll get this job. Is that something that someone's going to get sent to prison for? Generally, we think no. And it happens, and that happens in Hollywood as we know all the time. By the way, it happens in the news media a lot, too, which people don't want to talk about because they think that it – some people will talk about it now. But it happens in the business that I'm in, and it, and it's happened – some of it has come out. I know of 
plenty of rumors about other stuff that hasn't come out about some very famous people that pretty much all of you would know. Maybe it's all untrue, just rumors, but there's stuff out there, right, about about different people, about different um, different powerful. It, it, it is men that are engaging in this this behavior. It's powerful men. So what do I think is going to happen with Harvey Weinstein? Oh, I, I couldn't even tell you. I'm just saying that I think all options for this jury are really on the table and they're trying to figure this thing out. It's a very hard sell uh, for a jury, I think, that a, a woman is going to say he schemed to forcibly rape me against my will, committed a violent felony for which he could go to prison for the rest of his life. And I knew that that's what he did. And I was upset that that's what he did. But then afterwards, I continued to not only, you know, this isn't like being friendly to him in public, continue to have consensual sex with him for a long period of time, basically be his girlfriend or one of his girlfriends. That's a tough sell. And I think that in this era where we're seeing People being told, oh, before you have sex, this was just on the Drudge Report, I think, a few days ago, that there's this uh, there's this new movement where people are, are saying, well, get videotaped consent before you have sex with anybody who's you know not your wife or someone that you just are trusting your life to anyway, right? Uh, but get videotaped consent before you have sex with somebody. And how this is a movement that's been starting, except you know what the problem with that is? Then the... People that are, are part of Me Too and that are advocating for this this idea that men are – it very quickly does transition into men are almost a, a hostile gender against women entirely and have to we have to be on guard against them and toxic masculinity and all these other thoughts come into play. But you've already seen, oh, no, just because you get someone's videotaped consent doesn't mean that you're in the clear because if someone afterwards if, – if the woman afterwards says she did not consent because she changed her mind after the video – well, you know, now you're still facing rape charges, right? Or or maybe she consented to sex, but not certain sex acts or whatever it may be. So even if you get videotape, people will say, well, that's not that's not proving consent. And you start to ask the question, what does prove consent then? Just just verbal consent is not enough. Has to be video video consent. Not enough contractual consent. Write it out. There was an app someone created a while back to get that. Is that enough? So there are these are all ideas that are, you know, these get infused into this trial in different ways. What's what's somebody advancing their professional career and, and an exploitative, slovenly, grotesque mess of a human being versus what is a true criminal predator who should spend the rest of his life rotting in a cell, will die in a cell most likely? It's a big question that this jury faces right now, and uh, we'll see how it shakes out. And it was very interesting reading about this because I think a lot of people in the I, I generally was like, oh, I thought before I read about this, I was like, Harvey Weinstein, he's done. He is done. He's going away for for at least 20, 25 years. Right. And then I read the trial trans. I, mean, I read some of the trial transcripts and read reporting on this. And I thought, you know, they I, I, I could see the jury deciding to go for a lower count here, maybe the four years for the criminal sexual misconduct, or I could see a hung jury. Because there's some very big questions that were raised by that uh, aggressive defense attorney, female defense attorney, uh, and in the cross examinations that you read, this is it's not open and shut. It's all I'm saying. It's not open and shut. That's for sure. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
But as we keep on winning, Washington Democrats keep on losing their minds. They've gone nuts. That's why millions of registered Democrats, voters, people that were with the Democrats for a long time, they're leaving their party to join our movement. I would like to believe what Trump is saying there. I think he's doing a bit of selling, a bit of salesmanship here instead of going on hard and fast numbers. But I also play that clip because, yeah, millions of Democrats joining the Republican Party. It's a nice thought. I am getting a little worried now that we've entered a phase of overconfidence on the Republican side. And we need to be very, very cautious against that. This race is going to be there is not going to be a Mondale style landslide. This this is not going to be a crushing defeat in terms of the Electoral College for Democrats. Not going to happen. Uh, If we could get a repeat of 2016, that would be pretty fantastic. Maybe Trump flips New Hampshire, maybe one or two other states go for him, which would be a big win. Don't get me wrong. But this is going to be tight. We're going to be up late on election night that that I can almost guarantee you. And I just I, I see this sense among among a lot of people in who are Trump supporters, people that I know in my personal life, people that I see across the media. We're all kind of like, well, Trumpsters getting it done. But we live in crazy times, my friends. We live in times of mass hysteria and delusion. And the libs do not care what reality is. They're trying to conjure their own reality all the time. So we got to keep the eye on the prize here. Just just a quick sort of. Uh, Kaga keep America or Cog not Kaga, Cog announcement. Keep America great announcement here. We gotta keep we gotta keep fighting going forward. This is gonna be a tight election. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think that's the best thing to do because I'd love to see Roger exonerated and I'd love to see it happen because I personally think he was treated very unfairly. I talk about witness tampering, but a man that he was tampering didn't seem to have much of a problem with it. I think they know each other for years and it's not like the tampering that I see on television when you watch a movie. That's called tampering with guns to people's heads and lots of other things. So we're going to see what it is. Maybe there was tampering and maybe there was. It seemed kind of like a joke between two people who know each other, but uh, prosecutors, when it comes to getting Trump people in trouble, have no sense of humor and, and honestly pretend that they can't understand plain English. No surprise there. We want to bring in our friend Jesse Kelly. He is, of course, a host of The Jesse Kelly Show on radio, on the first here on Pluto TV, also down in KPRC Houston, and now syndicated. Congrats on the syndication, Mr. Kelly. Thank you. I think everybody knew it was inevitable, Buck. I mean, I'm just so interesting, and what I do is so important. I think it's important that everybody gets a chance to just hear how how amazing you think you are, and there we go. That's the best way. That's the best way to do it. That is the best. That is the best way to do it. And look, because I'm such a huge fan of myself, obviously I appreciate all the other fans. But I really already have my best fan right here in house. Now, what do you think about what should happen next with Stone? I, I really, I look, I think. Pardoning him is a little much because Stone was con- was being a little bit of an idiot with some of this stuff. But I think a commutation, this guy shouldn't go to prison. But then again, if you pardon, it's going to drive the libs nuts. What do you think should happen? I'll pardon him. And, and, and look, I have to be full disclosure. 
even though I have avoided all things Roger Stone for a while, not intentionally, just because it wasn't something that interested to me. So I actually don't know that much about even who Roger Stone is. I know he's a GOP operative. I know the basics of the case and what he's accused of doing. So it's not like I'm unaware of it, but I'm not some Roger Stone super fan or Roger Stone enemy. I just don't know the guy. But as soon as you, as as AG Barr, as soon as the DOJ decided that Andrew McCabe, as former deputy director of the FBI, was not going to be indicted for lying multiple times under oath, then you have to pardon Stone. We We have to change things. And it's not about Roger Stone. It's about the fact that in this country, it is building and building, and these idiots in D.C. don't seem to know it, that people are getting sick and tired of one set of laws for the big people in the government club and one set of laws for the rest of us. People are sick of that, and you would better start evening out those scales or there's going to be a problem. It reminds me a little bit of how some conservatives switched over to, well, one, more just wartime conservatism. By the way, do you see there's there's a peacetime conservatism summit going on somewhere with, like, all the never-Trumpers are getting together? <laughs> They're basically all trying to, like, hold hands and talk to each other about how important it is to root for Democrats, because that's how you really help the Republican Party and conservatism, by by helping the other side win. I mean, these people have completely lost their minds, but, you know, they... <laughs> You know what's really funny about that Never Trump movement? I saw that, by the way. It was really actually, I found it to be kind of sad. Like, I didn't even make fun of them because it was so pathetic looking. A lot of these people used to be big, big voices in the conservative movement. And now they're stuck having like this 20-person conference, I'm sure, in the lobby of a Super 8 in the D.C. area somewhere. And it's just pathetic. And all it comes down to is pride, man. These were people who thought Trump was going to be a disaster. But look, that was me. I thought Trump was going to be a disaster, but then Trump turns out to be really good, and they can't just step up and say, hey, I was wrong. I missed it. The inability to just say I was wrong has cost a lot of people a lot of money in this lifetime. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed now in retrospect, and I will say that about some of the very, very nice things I said about a, Mitt, about a would-be Mitt Romney presidency. I admit that I, you know, I, I just, yeah, he was better than Obama, but like that's not, that doesn't really say very much. And I wasn't like holding my nose voting for Mitt Romney. I thought Mitt would be really good in the role, and now I see Mitt Romney's a Romneyist. <laughs> yes. Now you figured out that he's Mitt Romney, and now that's that's a big deal. But look, I was the same way. I thought Mitt would be excellent, and I mean, look, we're, we're all wrong. I mean, especially you, but not as much me. But everybody's wrong at some point in time in their life. It's just not that big of a deal to step up and say I was wrong. But for some reason, these people in this political game find that to be so difficult, or they look at it as some kind of lack of credibility. People understand when you're wrong. Just say I was wrong. Now, where are you on the Democrat on the Democrat race? Speaking of how everyone everyone's been wrong, I don't know if you've been. I, I haven't actually heard or seen you on on Twitter on this one. I have been almost annoying in my repetition from the very beginning when he was ahead in all the polls. I was like, Biden's not going to be the nominee. Biden's not. This guy's a joke. Everybody, everybody who knows anything actually knows it. He's not going to be the nominee. Looking pretty good on that prediction right now. But I wanted to get your take on. The Bloomberg, Bernie, Throwdown, plus Warren, who I know is your favorite. I feel like you guys are probably DMing each other when no one's looking, but what do you think? <laughs> well, Bloomberg's going to be the nominee. I've been telling everybody this for a month now. Bloomberg is going to be the nominee. Money talks. We are heading towards a brokered convention where you're going to have a bunch of people who either A, owe Bloomberg favors, or B, want to owe Bloomberg favors, and those are going to be the delegates deciding which candidate 
gets to be the nominee for Democrat, and it's going to be Mike Bloomberg. Every TV pundit is going to owe him favors. Every newspaper writer is going to owe him favors because he's buying up all this advertising for everybody. Mike Bloomberg has been banking a lot of favors for a lot of years. On yeah, see, see, my take, and I said this yesterday on my show here in New York on WOR, I said everyone who's, who's freaking out about Bloomberg's performance is forgetting that no one thought Bloomberg was going to have a good performance, and Bloomberg doesn't care, really. He showed up yeah. so that he can say, I'll show up, I'll take the heat, but he's going to win the election. I'm sorry, he's going to win the nomination, rather, if he does win it, because of all those things that you said. There was no world yeah. in which Bloomberg was going to be on stage and be this dynamo who makes great arguments, is compelling, and doesn't seem like he's about to have a bunch of butlers carry him on their bare shoulders to his next appointment. Well, we look at, I mean, and this is human nature. We all do this. We look at each debate in a vacuum and we want to say, well, he won and uh, he lost and he got an A and a B. A debate is only if you won or lost the debate based on what you needed out of it. Did you get what you needed out of it? Amy Klobuchar needed to walk on that stage and look like the second coming of Christ with everybody else looking like an ugly demon and her being the savior on earth. Not possible, but that's what she needed out of the debate. And, of course, she sucks on camera anyway. Bloomberg, with all his dollars, he just had to stand up there and not die for two hours, and he didn't die. I I totally agree with you. All he had to do was show up. Everything else is baked into the cake for him. And people that think, oh, it's all over, he had a terrible night, I'm like, a terrible night compared to what? You know, he's, he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't even care what the people of Nevada think for one. No, no. Well, people are stuck in the old days, and they need to understand, and it's really important that they are in, we're in a new news cycle age these days. Let's say Bloomberg had the worst night ever. I actually don't think he did, but let's say he had the worst night ever. Twenty-four, forty-eight hours later, that debate is going to be completely forgotten, and Bloomberg's still going to be on every television show. His mail is going to be in every single mailbox. He's going to be everywhere under the sun, and all those candidates who are landing all those petty shots on on Bloomberg don't have the money to do what he does. It's overall he did fine. I see. I also I like to present honest uncertainty. Now I know you're perfect and never wrong, Jesse, so we can just skip past that. But I, <laughs> but I like to present uh, honest uncertainty to pe- to my audience when I can, and I I go back and forth on. You know, there's a part of me that feels like Bernie Sanders gets annihilated in the general election against Trump. I think Trump beats either Bernie or uh, or Bloomberg at this point. But if we're looking at who has a better shot, do you have a clear because some some days it feels for me like Bloomberg is more reasonable and will do better against Trump in the states that matter. And other days I'm like, Bernie's got a, an army of lunatics behind him. Who knows how that's going to shake out? Where do you come down on that one? Oh, it's definitely Bloomberg. It's definitely Bloomberg. And believe me, I I see the enthusiasm behind Bernie, and it does make me a little nervous. I'm not lying about that. But the truth of the matter is Bernie's, uh, you know, his lack lack of willingness, for lack of a better way to put it, to lie about what he actually believes is what's going to kill him. Like that fracking answer he gave the other night about, well, we're just going to have to find new jobs. That, that ends campaign. Donald Trump would run that campaign from the second the primary ended to the day Donald Trump won 40 states in the general. Bernie Sanders is running openly on a platform to wipe out jobs in the Rust Belt, the Rust Belt that he needs to win the election. He cannot win. I really think Donald Trump would win 40 states if Bernie was a nominee. No, I, I, can't, I would be remiss if I didn't get some of your, your thoughts on your secret favorite candidate, Elizabeth Warren. Producer Mark, would you play that wonderful soundbite, mm-hmm. clip 10, please? I get it. I am not 
of a woman of color, I never got thrown across a hood. I have the privilege of never having been slammed into the wall by a police officer. But I tell you this, I listen to people who have. I listen and I say when I am president of the United States, that is not going to happen again. Um, two things. One, no, people will still get slammed up against the wall by cops because that's actually what police work entails sometimes. And two, what is this Elizabeth Warren saying that she's not a woman of color? I'm, I'm, what's going on here? See, Elizabeth Warren has entered that phase of every campaign that from now on will forever be known as the Beto phase, where you are completely done. She knows she's, per- she's completely done. Her staffers know she's completely done. Her donors know she's completely done. And so now you just throw any insane thing up against the wall to see where it splatters and hope to God you get some kind of traction. But in so doing, you drag down your entire party on your way out the door. It is called the Beto phase, and every politician does it now. Yes, I, I think that that's – I agree that's the phase Elizabeth Warren is in. I also found one of her answers in the debate that didn't get a lot of, a lot of attention was when she talked about how in the future with new technologies – that would come about to deal with climate change, that she would make those companies, you know, make them as president be here in America. I'm just like, none of this makes any sense. And she doesn't have the power to do that. And does anyone care that like she's supposed to be the smart socialist? I I don't see evidence of that. The the ultimate the ultimate thing that the Democrats do. And this is, again, where Bernie went wrong with his fracking answer and where he always goes wrong with it. If they have to keep things vague, and I realize I'm a complete partisan, I make no bones about that, but what Elizabeth Warren did during that answer you talked about was she got specific. And as soon as they get specific, you realize just how horrific the modern-day Democratic platform is. Their entire platform involves tearing apart the U.S. economy, spending money we don't have at all, and while all at the same time finding these random piles of money to chuck at their various victim groups trying to buy votes, and they're open about it. It really is monstrous. My favorite thing is that I, I, that, that I think we could do after the – because there's a debate next week. I, I want a panel – of never Trumpers pulled together, like media never Trumpers pulled together. You know, I, I want to have Bill Crystal and Max Boot and Tom Nichols and, you know, just go down the list of them, and like five or six of them. And then after the debate, they have to sit there and point out which Democrat they want to vote for instead of Trump and why. Because I think for people who, like Jennifer Rubin, obviously Jennifer Rubin's my single favorite of all of them. Uh, it, it, it would be so instructive for people to hear so-called conservatives who are never Trump explaining why, in some cases, they will vote for a socialist over Donald Trump. Well, it just comes back to pride. Well, it comes back to pride. And let's be honest, it comes back to money. I mean, nobody likes to talk about this, but everybody has bills to pay. Everyone has to put food on the table. And so many of those people you just named, they're funded by left-wing mega, mega, mega donors right now because it looks good to have someone on the GOP ticket who's anti-Trump. They're funded by leftists. And the second a Democrat got elected president, they'd cease to be useful and those checks would stop coming. So they really haven't thought this through very well. Yep, I agree. Well, Jesse, where should folks go to hear the Jesse Kelly show? It's right there. It's on the iHeartRadio app, at least for the next month and a half or so, and then it'll be on a radio near you. All righty. Jesse Kelly, everybody, the man himself. Jesse, have a great weekend. Be good, brother. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
What I want to see us do is get off an oil economy, and not only for ourselves, but for the rest of the world. Uh, I want to see us move entirely to green. And let me say on this, I not only support a green new deal, I don't think it goes far enough. I also have a blue new deal because we got to be thinking about our oceans as well that we need to protect. Yeah, that's right. The green new deal, which is crazy. Not crazy enough for Elizabeth Warren if she's president. She wants to tackle the oceans. Oceans, as I'm sure you know, are very large. And there are a lot of countries that affect the oceans or that deal with oceans uh, in a variety of ways, including the pollutants and the, the trash they put in them. Uh, people don't like to talk about this, but the whole plastics in our ocean problem is overwhelmingly a problem not of the developed world, the problem of uh, Asia and, Af uh, well, I should say coasts uh, of Asia and coasts of some parts of Africa, countries that are still in the developing phase, or in the case of China, huge countries that have developed but just don't care. So the trash that goes into the oceans is not coming from us, but we will engage in a whole lot of uh, very, you know, very visible, oh, woe is me, America needs to do more about this. But it is true, I and mean, we were just talking to Jesse about this, Elizabeth Warren has entered that phase where she feels like her only hope of a surge is to just say out loud what most Democrats and leftists know to keep to themselves. So it's, it's entertaining, but just imagine that. The Green New Deal is not enough. Rebuilding every structure in America and getting rid of cow farts, not enough. Also have to tackle. I mean, this is from a government that tells us that they can't build, you know, a, a wall, right? That, that That's crazy. That could never happen on our southern border. Uh, the Democrats tell us that that can't be done. And yet we're going to clean up all the oceans? Or we're going to control the temperature? Really, it's to control the temperature of the oceans, which is even more insane. And as if that's not enough, Elizabeth Warren also wants you to know that immigration and customs enforcement, yeah, maybe she just abolish... Their mission, if not that agency entirely, play 19. Two things about this. The first, I will do what I can do as president all alone. And that means I will make sure that these raids that sweep through our neighborhoods stop. We will not engage in this kind of deportation. It is wrong. Why is it wrong? She sits on the Senate. They write laws. The law says that you cannot be in this country illegally. Why isn't she trying to pass a bill to make it legal to just come to this country then? See, this is the game the Democrats play. They, in Congress, write laws. They can also repeal laws. But instead of having the courage of their convictions and just write a law that says we're open borders, no more immigration enforcement, they get mad at those who enforce the laws that they leave on the books. It's because they're pandering, pathetic disgraces. That should be the Democrats' bumper sticker for 2020. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Could Republicans take back control of the House in 2020? The Trump and GOP campaign war chest looking pretty big as those races are getting uh, serious and we're getting into crunch time here. But for the House specifically, do we have a real shot of retaking it for the Republicans? I want to bring somebody in who 
is on the front lines of this battle, and he's been on the front lines of many other battles at that. Sean Parnell, former Army Ranger, combat veteran from Afghanistan, author of the best-selling book Outlaw Platoon, and, of course, running for a congressional seat in the great state of Pennsylvania. Sean, my man, great to have you back. Hey, man. Good to be back. So let's start with this. You're seeing this from the from the level of somebody who's trying to take, what is it, PA-17? Is that right? Yeah, correct. That's correct. pretty good off the top of my head. I'm not going to lie. PA-17, <laughs> you're trying to take out Connor, Connor Lamb, and who's really just the poor man's Sean Parnell, who also happens to be a lib. And and the, the reality here is this is going to be a major contest, even though it's just one congressional seat, because of what, what it is. It's kind of a bellwether for much of the rest of the congressional races in the country and contested areas. First off, how do you see Republicans looking in general when it comes to taking back majority this fall? How are you feeling about that? What are you hearing from your fellow candidates? Well, I think we're going to do it. I, I have never seen motivation this high. I have never seen people on the Republican side, independent side, and Democratic side, by the way, Buck, this excited to vote for President Trump. Um, PA-17 is my district, as you mentioned, in Beaver County. That entire county is in my district. And I was at a sportsman club with about 150 people, the vast majority of whom were Democrats, uh, and they were wearing MAGA hats, and they were voting for me because they feel betrayed uh, by the Democratic Party, which in this day and age doesn't really have a soul. I mean, there's a massive fracture in the Democratic Party in western Pennsylvania, and I think nationally as well, between the socialists and pro-life, pro-gun union Democrats who the socialists would put out of work with a stroke of a pen. And those people, by and large, uh, you know, their eyes are open. And, you know, while I don't think that they're going to be switching their registration from Democrat to Republican anytime soon, they're all proud union Democrats, legacy Democrats. They will vote for me and they will vote for President Trump. And I mean, look, I, with the Allegheny County Lincoln dinner, um, we, we, we typically get good attendance this year. We had the best attendance in the history of the dinner. We had over 500 people come out to our dinner in Allegheny, Allegheny County, which is which is you know ground zero for the war for the White House and the war to, to flip the house here in Western Pennsylvania. So and you've already have you already had Vice President Pence out there stumping for you, and also I'm assuming the president's going to have to stop by. You know, I mean, does does Air Force One fit in your backyard, man? How's that going to go? <laughs> Well, yes, Vice President came out to uh, PA-17, uh, out to Beaver County to do a rally with me, which was crazy, crazy in, in early – because I'm just a kid. I'm a Western PA guy, a blue-collar guy, carried a gun in Afghanistan, write books for a living. I mean, I've known you for a long time, Buck. This is crazy. The Vice President and the President are going to be coming out here to PA-17 often. We're hearing whispers that the President might be out here in the next month. Um it's kind of an unbelievable thing, and it's funny, and I haven't talked about this publicly, but the vice president was out here, and I took my kids out of school. I gave them a half day of school for the rally, and, you know, it went a little long. The vice president was amazing and gave my family a ton of time, and I asked the vice president jokingly, you know, can you write my kids letters, uh, excuse letters for school? And he did. <laughs> it was the coolest Wait, thing ever. Vice President Pence wrote excuse letters for your kids. That's amazing. <laughs> yes, yes. He's just a great human being. And, you know, can I, can I, I just real quick, man, I, when I interviewed him, he actually it was I interviewed him on, on my mother's birthday. My mom is the greatest mom in the world. And I asked him, could you just do a quick video birthday message for my mom and i felt i never do that but you know my mom my mom loves america and she's she's a you know trump supporter 
and 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 he he did a really nice video for her and didn't like he didn't miss a beat too. I didn't have like staffers come over in a flurry like oh I don't know if he's got time for this or whatever. He like took the phone out of my hand, big smile, made this nice video for my mom, gave it back to me. I'm like, this is why people like this guy. That's you are exactly right, man. And like this is why people like the president as well. You know the spirit uh, at his rallies and at, at, when the vice president came. These are good people. They care about America. They they give people their time. They shake hands. They talk to people. They build relationships. And, you know, more importantly, like you said, you know, your mom loves America. The, the, the general sentiment from Trump supporters, both independent, Democrat and Republican, are that the president and the vice president in this administration puts America first and, you know, loves our country. I don't think that we get the same feeling from any of the Democrats in the dumpster fire that is the Democratic debates, which are full of nothing but stale, high-tax, big-government liberals who hate President Trump and, and want to control every aspect of your life. That's not a winning message, and, they're in, and they don't have a shot. I'm telling you, they don't have a shot to beat President Trump uh, in November, and the energy that I'm seeing out in western Pennsylvania is I've never seen anything like it before. Now, what are you what are you learning? I mean, you're somebody who, like me, you know, you you do a, did a lot of national security analysis because of your time in Afghanistan, the Army Rangers. So people come to you for that, right? I mean, and mm-hmm. that, that's a discussion that you and I have had many times in the past on on some of those issues. Um, but you are also someone who follows politics even before you got in this race very closely. As somebody who's doing it now, instead of somebody who's commenting on it or or sharing their thoughts on various political races, what's just some of the stuff that you've learned? from running for a U.S. congressional seat? Well, I would say that, that people, you know, and this might sound like politically, but kitchen table issues matter to the people of Western Pennsylvania. You know, putting food on the table for their families and, and making sure that, you know, we keep taxes low for, 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 for everybody in America so that they can invest that money the way that they want. In uh, businesses, we talk to businesses all over Western Pennsylvania. These These are these people and these businesses are just starting to get profitable again after eight years of oppressive regulations under the Obama administration. Businesses all across this, this district in the, and in Western Pennsylvania are hiring 20, 30, 40 more people. Um, in fact, there aren't enough people for the job openings that they have. They're buying new equipment. They're expanding their businesses. And these are largely blue-collar union Democrats that, that are working. And they're making more money today than they ever have before. More women in this day and age are working than, than ever have before in the history of our country. We have peace and prosperity. And, and this is something that is a bipartisan thing. People feel safe. People feel like the economy is working for them. And, and you know, the, these tax cuts have been a huge deal to middle-class Americans uh, of all political walks of life. And so, you know, I think, you know, you know, we always talk about national level issues, impeachment and everything like that. But most, most Americans, and especially the people here in PA 17, they care about, you know, putting food on the table for their families. They care about paying their bills. They, par- they care about the cost of prescription drugs. They care about, you know, they care about health care and our broken health care system and, and the, the need to reform with market-based innovations, not government monopoly on health care. Um, all of these things matter. And, again, these are things that affect Americans in their day-to-day lives. And, you know, part of my job as someone who's running to represent this district is to have answers for 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 the American people uh, and solutions uh, for their families to help put them in a better place to be successful. Now, Sean, I'm sure you saw this. New York Times published an editorial, What We, the Taliban, Want, from Sirajuddin uh, Haqqani, one of the Haqqanis, one of the bad guys, mm-hmm. one of the guys whose fighters, whose terrorists you fought against. 
and there the the editorial is about what the the Taliban perspective is on the Trump administration's uh, peace negotiations to end this war. What do you what do you think about all this? I mean, what do you think about this move to get our guys out finally and have some deal in place? Let's be honest, it's a deal with the Taliban. Yeah, and let me tell you, like we fought the Akani network almost exclusively in eastern Afghanistan for 16 months, Buck. Siraj Akani, when we were there, took the took the mantle of the Akani network from Jaladeen Akani. Now, Jaladeen Akani was a guy, was Mujahideen, fought the Russians, was a moderate, uh, was not pro-Western, but understood Western values and was someone that you could possibly negotiate with. Siraj Akani is not. He is a radical Islamic extremist to the core. He tortured and kidnapped children. He targeted civilians. He blew up schools. Nothing that he says in that article can be relied upon. And, you know, a peace negotiation with a terrorist like Siraj, uh, Siraj Haqqani is not worth the paper that it's printed on. Now, now I will say I, I, I want to get out of Afghanistan more than most people. I know what the sacrifice, I know what it means to sacrifice blood and treasure in Afghanistan because I've done it myself. Um, but, you know, and I think the Trump administration in large part is, is on the right track with regards to the large scale military strategy. We can do more in Afghanistan with less and a shift from counterinsurgency, which means, you know, when you hear the president talk about we're in every village patrolling every village, that doesn't work. He's talking about counterinsurgency. It doesn't work. It worked in Iraq, but it won't work in Afghanistan. So I think a shift from counterinsurgency to a counterterror strategy where you have special forces on the ground going after high value targets, keeping the enemy on their toes, going after the worst of the worst. Uh, is a good thing. It keeps Afghanistan from going back to being a petri dish for terrorists. But none of that really matters if the government in Afghanistan is openly hostile to U.S. troops. That won't be possible with the pe- people like Siraj Haqqani, you know, having a voice in, in the political future of Afghanistan. So I'm, I'm very concerned um, about the way ahead. You know, I, I'm not. I, I'll just say I wish there was a way forward with the peace deal, but I'm, I'm certainly not optimistic about what's on paper right now. And Sean, before we let you go, what are some of the switching back to politics here for a moment, some of the uh, events either coming up or just some of the, the dates and milestones between now and Election Day that your your campaign is going to be hitting? Well, oh, my gosh, you know, the, the, here's the here's the deal, Buck. We're, we go everywhere. We do five events a day. We wake up at six in the morning. We meet with people. We shake hands. We build relationships and we're building coalitions. Um, you know, tonight we're going to do uh, a fraternal order of police uh you know, uh, it's it's what they call like a gold card dinner, uh, and we're going to go honor our first responders and their families tonight as as they get out and retire uh, from the police. And then we're just going to be running and gunning all weekend, man. And you know, our primary is April 28th, but I don't really have a serious primary opponent, so we're focused on the general. Uh, we're focused on you know giving the people of PA 17 a voice and making sure that we we flip the house make Kevin McCarthy the speaker and get President Trump back in the White House so we can continue this this unbelievable economic boom that we've got in this country right now. Now I got to put you on the on the spot Sean Parno. What <laughs> go ahead, what food should the good people of Western Pennsylvania be be best known for? What food? Oh my gosh, man. Well, of course it's our permani sandwich, right? The one with the coleslaw and the french fries and all that stuff. Yeah, that's what people, you know, people come to one they always they always trek to permanis to get themselves a permani sandwich. Have you ever had one? I I never even heard of one. So, I got to come out. When am I getting invited out to Western PA for a permani sandwich? Hey, if the president comes out in a month, come out to the rally. Heck yeah, you let me know. Permani sandwich is on me if you come out for the rally. All right, I'll pull out the middle because I can't eat the gluten. But Sean Parnell, you're a real man who eats gluten. He's hopefully going to be the next 
Dele, the next uh, congressman from PA-17, everybody, Sean Parnell, Army Ranger. Go check out Outlaw Platoon. Unlike a lot of other people that talk about their friends' books, I read every page of it. It's excellent. You can get it on Amazon. And also, <laughs> if you're in the West, we got, we got a great audience in the Harrisburg area of this show. So I know that's not in your zone, but it probably extends close enough to your zone that we got listeners out there. Go help out my man, Sean Parnell. Go eat some barbecue with him. Sean, good luck. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Buck. Talk to you later. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Please welcome a man who has obviously never watched The View. Congressman <laughs> <laughs> Matt Gates. I do watch you guys make news every week. Every so day. We are the big political show. I was just wondering if you were wearing black as a consequence of like the death of the political left in the debate last night. It was <laughs> quite something to observe. Uh, you know, don't count the, the dead yet, the bodies. <laughs> Let's give it a little time before we count. Well, Joe Biden, at least. I mean, I was hoping that maybe Whoopi's Bell could wake up the Biden campaign if you hit it. I thought he was actually, he helped, helped, didn't do any harm to himself last night. What state's he going to win? I mean, this is a man who, uh, the fundamental premise of the Biden campaign is that he's electable and he can't seem to win elections. So now you have socialist Bernie Sanders against billionaire Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. Well, the Republicans love a billionaire. They love money. So what are you talking about? Well, Michael Bloomberg used to be a Republican. It's yep. fascinating no, that right Democrat now first. the Democratic Party is likely not going to nominate a Democrat. They're either going to nominate a socialist or someone who some time ago was a Republican. Got to give the guy credit. Matt Gates showed up ready to play at The View, man. That was pretty good. And uh, it is true the Democrats are going to vote a former, uh, either vote for, it seems, a former Republican billionaire or a socialist. So that's who's going to be leading the Democratic Party because it's in such disarray. Uh, the, and the point about Biden, as you know, I've been making that all along, which is just that Joe Biden is supposed to be the guy you vote for because you want to vote for a winner, except he's not a winner. He's a loser. So why would you vote for Biden? Um, there will be a surge. Give it give it a, a few days here. There will be a, a Biden bump after South Carolina. And everyone's going to say, oh, Joe Biden is the guy after all and all this stuff. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, not going to last. Not going to last. No way. Joe Biden's not going to last as, as a, uh, well, his front runner status has already gone away. But if he bumps back into a number one or number two in national polls, I think you can pretty much bet on Joe Biden not not lasting at all in, in that position once we get into Super Tuesday. One other thing I wanted to get to, Trump on movies. Uh, the president had some thoughts on the Academy Award winner for Best Picture that we've, we've mentioned here a little bit, Parasite. Play 22, please, Producer Mark. By the way, how bad were the Academy Awards this year? Did you see it? And the winner is a movie from South Korea. What the hell was that all about? problems with South Korea with trade. On top of it, they give him the best movie of the year. Was it good? I don't know. You know, I'm looking for like, where, where, let's get Gone with the Wind. Can we get like Gone with the Wind back, please? Sunset Boulevard. So many great movies. The winner is from South Korea. I thought it was best foreign film, right? Best foreign movie. No, it was the button. Did this ever happen before? And then you have Brad Pitt. I was never a big fan of his. He got upset, little wise guy said. Now, CNN hates Trump in a way that is is beyond rationality. I mean, CNN's hatred of Trump influences all their thinking and all their analysis and all the rest of it. 
And that's why it's not surprising that there's a piece on CNN's front page right now, Donald Trump's fundamentally un-American parasite critique from Chris Aliza, who's a Trump deranged loon. Uh, he can't even say he doesn't like a movie? <laughs> it's un-American? He can't even say that? Why? Oh, because the foreign language films? So he's, he's not allowed to criticize it? There are some fantastic foreign language films. All, all conservatives will tell you, who have seen it at least, that The Lives of Others, uh, which is a German language film, is fantastic. I think Downfall, another German language film about Hitler's last days in the bunker in Berlin, is an excellent movie. And you've all seen the meme where Hitler is pounding the table and screaming that they make on YouTube for... They, they repurpose that sequence of when Hitler finds out that he basically doesn't have any more real divisions to throw at the enemy or, you know, he's, he's surrounded and he's done. Uh, they use that to talk about different sports teams. Anyway, if you've seen the memes, you know what I'm talking about. Um, the Downfall is a great foreign language movie. I actually really enjoyed... Um, wait, no, that's... I was trying to think of that. Is that a... No, that's not a foreign language. What was the movie... Uh, a movie some years ago in Spanish... That was kind of, Do you know what I'm talking about, Producer Mark? No, Producer Mark. There's a movie. It was like a horror film, kind of, but it was really more of like a children's. Um, it was, it was uh, Guillermo del, del something or other. Not Guillermo del Toro. Anyway, who? I can't remember. I can't remember now. That was a movie years ago that was a Spanish language film that I, I thought was very good for, for what it was. I think Pan's Labyrinth. Thank you, Producer, producer Nick. That was foreign language. That was a Spanish. I thought that was an excellent movie. I really enjoyed that for what it was. I thought it was very well done. So there are foreign language movies that are great. I got to watch this Parasite movie now because the president's saying it's not very good. I don't think he's seen it, though. So maybe I have to see it and tell you what I think about this one. Something to add to my list for the weekend as I continue to watch The Americans. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Kathy kicks us off on roll call. Here's what she has to say. I started listening to your podcast a few months back. You stood up to a lib on Fox News about Black Lives Matter and violence. Thanks for your insights and honesty. Well, thank you. Just for your info, Jennifer Lopez is in a really cute romantic comedy called The Wedding Planner. It is a must-see. Her movie Enough is pretty good also, in my opinion. Thanks for making us laugh. When will you be on the Bill Maher Show? Thanks. Uh, well, thank you, Kathy. It's always great to have new listeners to the podcast, and I really appreciate that you've uh, stayed with Team Buck since first uh, checking us checking us out. And uh, I'll be on the Bill Maher Show next Friday. Gosh, this is coming up fast. Next Friday, the 28th of February, I'll be on HBO's Bill Maher Show. I think it's 10 o'clock Eastern is when that show airs. Uh, and then you can watch it on playback anytime during the week. It should be spicy. It should be spicy. I don't know who the other guests are yet, but do you like spicy food, producer Mark? I do, but I don't like to say the word spicy as something I'm doing as an adjective. Yeah, you know, I try. I, I can't use, 
I can't use four-letter words here, so I got to come up with, you know, culinary terms that are safe on air. You know? Sure. It should be blank and wild, man. Like, that'd be fun, but I can't I do mean, that. I mean, that'd be nice. Yeah. I just but, have to believe it for the radio. Yeah, and then, and, then, uh, and then people who listen are going to get mad at me. Uh, why are you teaching my kids to say blanken? And I'm like, well... Blankety blank blank, and you know what I mean. Like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, a lot of extra work for me. I yeah, really and stop you gotta you. you gotta have that going. And that's mm. no good. At least you don't have to worry about the dump button. So, thank goodness uh, for that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Um, what's on the producer mark agenda, by the way, for the weekend? Uh, packing. I'm moving in three weeks, Buck. Wow, you start packing three weeks in advance. Yeah, I usually start moving packing like two days before. Which I have is a wife. Yeah, that's true. So like, there's like two of you. If I just stuff. left it to until two days before, like she'd go crazy. Yeah, moving is can be a little stressful, but the good news is you'll be very close to the office here. Or That's closer. true. It will be. What What's the difference in commute from what you had to what you will have? It's like a right. It, it will be like a twenty-five minute commute. Right now, it's like a an hour fifteen. That's a little, little longer. Way better. Going to be way yeah, you better think? for you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, I, I don't think I got a chance to uh, say this to you, but because uh, I did the show on on the WR, I did this story in the WR show. Do you know what the worst single stretch of road in the entire United States for traffic is? It's I ninety five, right? Did you know where? Somewhere in New York, I'm guessing. Fort Lee, New Jersey. Yeah, right, right, right before the George. That area, right around the George Washington Bridge, worst traffic of any place in the United States, which is a pretty remarkable mm-hmm. feat when you think about it. This is based on GPS data from a million trucks. Yeah, I don't plan on uh, driving back into New York very often once yeah. I move to New Jersey. Yeah, what are you going to be doing, the path? Uh, it'll take? be NJ Transit. NJ Transit. Right oh, from Secaucus nice. to uh, Penn Station. There we go. See, guys, it's great because producer Mark can be here cutting clips and sound and video and doing cool things until like no, no, 2 no. o'clock in the morning now. Mrs. Mark knows no, he's no, good no, no. now. That means I can do so much more work from home. Well, there's that too. He yeah. gets to do more work from home. Guile writes in, Buck, I must admit I agree with you on pretty much all issues, but I believe Jesse's Smollett, Juicy Smollett, and anyone else who fakes a hate crime should be sentenced to the same as a real perp would for actually committing said hate crime. What if some poor soul was in the wrong place and got nabbed and convicted? Do you think Smollett would have caved and admitted guilt? Think again. Anybody who commits a false hate crime is guilty of a hate crime. Love the show. Shields high. Well, Guy, keep in mind, he did not accuse real people of committing the crime against him. I would, I would agree with you insofar as if you accuse someone of a hate crime against you, willingly, falsely, like knowingly and willfully, um, then you should face a very, very severe punishment. He he accused make-believe people of it in that there were white Trump supporters. And then later on, we found out that there are these guys who are working for him effectively, who were Nigerian actors. Uh, so I don't think they were ever really in jeopardy. But if he had accused them and they faced any kind of real criminal jeopardy, I, mean, I, I think... You know, bearing false witness in a criminal situation should be treated very seriously. And, you know, the law makes all kinds of distinctions about what is true and what is not, what is real and what is not. So I don't want to hear people say, oh, but then people will be afraid to bring charges. No, it's not. There's a difference between not being able to prove that you told the truth beyond a reasonable doubt about somebody else and being able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that someone lied about somebody else. Right. So the same logic should, should apply, and I, I think that it should be very... Very severe punishment for people that bear false witness in a way that could have really severe consequences for someone. Robert, this past Thursday, you spoke about a professor who had lived under communist ideology in Soviet Russia and now sees the widespread danger of similar ideas being accepted by young people here in the United States. 
One effect of this indoctrination is that leftists are depriving young people of their becoming thoughtful, independent, independent minded men and women who will discover and cultivate their individual talents and skills and who, after their education years, will continue to develop those skills and be able to engage with others in creative and constructive ways that benefit those with whom they engage, the society at large, and themselves individually. Whoa. Instead of looking toward an illusionary socialist system, young people might instead look toward human freedom, human creativity, and a culture of opportunity. I think we got to get Robert to be like a speechwriter for the Buck Sexton Show. That was that was a, a lot of eloquence. Thank you so much, Robert. Appreciate it. Adam, Buck, I can't believe producer Mark has never seen Princess Bride. He has no grounds to code red you for not following sports. Shields high. Producer Mark, the floor is yours, sir. Of course I have uh, ability to code red you for not liking sports. Claim to be like the biggest American in the world. And America thrives on sports. Notice how he comes at me. I'm not, I didn't even, this is just some guy I wrote in and all of a sudden he's coming at me. I'm just trying, no, what's, no, what's with the no princess, coming at you. what's with the no princess bride? Why not this weekend when you're packing up boxes, put it up there, you probably, okay, maybe. probably rent it. one for, of the streaming services? Probably, yeah, you, well, I, it probably is, but you can rent probably. it for like 99 cents on Amazon. I mean, why am I going to rent it when I pay for like four different streaming services? I think if you do the search in the search bar, if you have a, a streaming service, you'll, yeah. you'll find one of them. I think I, I legitimately have three right now. I have Netflix, Hulu, and Disney Plus. Yeah. Disney Plus is good, by the way. Yeah, I oh, haven't I, used I, as much as I'd like. I've been but. trying to get through the Avengers Endgame. It's horrible, okay? So uh. people people who get mad at me for this, I've tried. I tried, what? all right? Fat Thor isn't funny. Oh, like, it's I, hilarious. Oh, my God. It's garbage. I, you guys all, you're agreeing with me. Bruce Mark is wrong on this one. Wait, have you watched the, the movies leading up to it? No. So then why are you just watching Endgame? Because it's the one that popped up on Disney Plus. Ah. <sighs> It's so bad. They're all walking around all mopey. Like, uh, you know, yeah, like, you have no idea what happened. Yeah, I figured out that Thanos or whatever killed everybody. Boo-hoo. I mean, you know, give me a movie uh, to watch. Huge. It is a great movie. I cannot believe people. Like, nothing even happens. I'm watching it. It's nothing. Keep going. Plenty happens. I don't even see Hulk smash. I don't see anything happen. You can't watch that movie but the first part. I mean, I, look, I know it's made a billion dollars or whatever, yeah. but I'm just trying to so say So clearly you're in the minority here. I mean, I'm in the minority, but just like with other things, when I say it, it's true. So uh, there you go. Not true. Yeah. So, but producer Mark will at some point give us his review of The Princess Bride. Because you can watch, right. Mrs. Mark will like it. Yes. So I'm you sure can watch it with it. her. Yeah, she's probably seen it, but you see it with her. Fine. I will watch it at some point. There you go. We're going we're gonna to hold him to it. Rick writes, Buck, did you know Van Damme was the original Predator- in the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, his first part, they had him dressed up in this silly alien costume, hopping around as Van Damme does. They cut all the scenes out and replaced him with what's in the movie now. There's a YouTube video showing the scenes. Rick, I did know that. And the suit they had him in was apparently too heavy for the jungle sequences that they were trying to, to, to film. And I, I, did, I did know that. And they replaced him with a guy who... Um, was over seven feet tall. I believe he died. I believe he might have died of, uh, I'm, I'm actually not sure. But I, anyway, a very tall guy who was in the suit. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's what happened in the movie Predator. The ma- I want them to do the Netflix show, the movies that made us is great. It's a lot of fun. I want them to do that with Predator. They did one with Die Hard, which was amazing. And they also did one with Home Alone, which was much better than I thought. Have you seen that, by the way? Another one that you and Mrs. That, Mark That's something on, on the queue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's good. It's you good. Know, I there's wanna... something interesting on HBO you might like. What? Have you ever heard about, you know, the McDonald's uh, Monopoly game? 
Uh, no. You've never heard, how have you never heard of that? No. You know, where they have little Monopoly pieces on, like, a French fry container or on a soda cup or whatever? They played this game for literally 25 years, my entire life. Oh, okay. Sure, I know about it, because I'm a real American. Go yeah. ahead. And do massive advertising. Ca- right, right, well, yes. Well, basically, it was rigged for 15 years of it, and there's a whole HBO documentary series about the investigation into it. It's very interesting. Oh, we will have to check that out then. But apparently you've never played the no, game. No, I know all about it. One time in Happy college- meals and stuff. My friends, we drove around to different McDonald's just buying large fries and large drinks trying to win the game. What is the best single item at McDonald's? Oh, the fries. Of course. Fries are amazing. You know, the fries do have gluten because they use wheat in the uh, bullion or whatever, like the beef So maybe stock that's why you don't know about this that stuff. They, oh, I ate it growing up, but like they actually have gluten in the French fries, which sure. gluten in French fries is, is very sad. That's not supposed to happen, but no, it does no. happen sometimes. You know what? It always happens with the curly fries because they batter them to keep the, the spice sauce. They'll put batter, so it's flour, mm-hmm. on curly fries. So I haven't had curly fries in like 20 years. I'm sure they make gluten-free ones. You just have to look. I've never seen them. It's one thing I've never... I've never seen gluten-free curly fries. Hmm. I've had gluten-free crab cakes. I've had gluten-free... There's even gluten-free baguette now if you go to fancy grocery stores. That exists. I'm sure it's probably like a like You'll have to get your brother up this. He's got the muffin company. He's got the curly fries. He's got the amazing... Yeah, but see, that's potato. That's a little more savory. I don't know if that's really in his Maybe one day once he has the gluten-free empire. If I I told you 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 either could give up... You you either had to give up French fries for the rest of your life, or any kind of uh, chocolate for the rest of your life. Which one do you go? For? Oh, I I guess I have to go with French fries, but like it's a tough choice. I would I I give up French fries, but I would weep. Yeah, I would so weep would I. about that. I mean, I have to think about it. I just love chocolate. Chocolate so there's much, more variety, yeah. so that's why I think you in the end you got to go with chocolate. But French fries, those are my weaknesses. Like those are the things yeah. where I feel like I'd have a six pack if it weren't for chocolate, French fries, and probably whole milk, which unfortunately yeah. also is very calorically dense and has a lot of sugar in it. People but, don't realize but that. But do you like cheesecake? I can't eat cheesecake. Really? No, Flour. like the cheesecake uh, flavoring at least. Oh yeah, of course. There actually are gluten free cheesecakes yes. too. Cheesecake Factory just came out with cheesecake ice cream. Whoa. And not all of them have cheesecake pieces in them, so some would be gluten-free. Yeah. Well, ice cream's another thing I like a lot. Huh. Daniel, hey, Buck, love your show. Your commentary is the most insightful on the airwaves. When I heard Bernie Sanders talk about government housing and rent control, I immediately thought we've already tried those, and they fail. I remember working for a church in Kansas City, Missouri, in the early 1990s and saw the most poverty-stricken areas were the projects, which were old government-built housing units. Bernie is determined to pile more socialism atop previously failed socialism. He wants a bigger New Deal. Shields high. Daniel, well said, man. It's true. Bernie wants to put failed socialism atop failed socialism, and he wonders why people like me think this is a bad idea. It's a very, very, very bad idea, but this is what we have to deal with, my friends. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Carol writes, hey, now, just caught you on the radio, and you spoke about something that really hits home. I have one of the longest-lasting cadaver kidney transplants, 45 years. All my life, I took good care of myself, worked, have to keep working, paid into Medicare, and took care of my health care through my insurance. Now I'm 65, had to go on Medicare, plus buy a plan D for meds and a stopgap insurance, and it's going to kill me. It took five months of fighting just to get my vital transplant drugs. Now my routine necessary care uh, for liver blood panel test was denied. 
in questioning the doctor's office, I'm told that more and more routine normal procedures are being denied by Medicare. As you have said, what kind of health care is Bernie suggesting? If they, mean, if they mean Medicare for all, Medicare needs fixing first. I'll be appealing and appealing again and again, but in the meantime, with the extra expense, our grocery money is about $50 a week for the two of us. I was scared to go on Medicare. I was right, and there is no recourse. Carol, I'm so sorry to hear about that, um, but we do appreciate you sharing your, your personal story here so that people realize that Medicare is not is not a panacea for all everyone's health problems. It is already too expensive as a program. It is not that well administered. Doctors are taking less and less Medicare. Uh, th there's a lot of problems here. And Bernie Sanders does not fix the problems. He would make all of these problems marked, markedly worse. Um, so I'm sorry to hear about your struggles. Stay in the fight. Keep your shield high. You know, you and your husband band together. You'll be all right. Uh, Greg. Trump definitely needs to run on the space program. Democrats are blocking his, his mission to put the first woman on the moon, let alone his mission to put a man on Mars. Trump is our best shot to go to another planet. Liberals want to take a step backwards. Shields high. Hmm. I think it would be interesting if Trump was able to get a little more stuff done in space. The final frontier. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. Liberals will stand in Trump's way on everything, so that's not, that's not surprising. Steve, hey, Buck, as always, I look forward to your podcast every day, and you always rock out with sound analysis and make me laugh with your impressions. Bernie is the best. Mini Mike is pretty outstanding. Just thought I'd drop one idea on the Roger Stone case. I think before President Trump issues any sort of pardon, I think a possible mistrial process may play out with the tainted jury four-person allegation. I mean, she basically flat-out lied to the judge during voir dire examination of the jury. Should a mistrial be declared, then DOJ has a decision to make. If no mistrial, DJT may wait a year and then commute a sentence unless he loses the election, then I'd expect a pardon before leaving office. Actually, for all, all caught up in the Russia hoax, except for maybe Cohen, shields high from the live free or die state. So, yeah, good things. Good things all around. Thank you for writing in on that one. I just cracked my knuckles for no apparent reason. Hopefully you didn't hear that. All right, team. Uh, if you have not already, by the way, please do uh, tune in if you can on uh, the iHeart app when I do the New York City-based Buck Section show the on 710-WOR. I'm after Sean Hannity here in New York City. Uh, so you can listen on the iHeart Radio app. Or if in, in the New York area, even better, tune in to 710-WOR on the radio and uh, that's going to be our show for today, man. we got a busy week next week. Next Friday, I'm out in California. We'll be doing uh, my WOR show. We will have Ben Weingarten in on my syndicated show. And then i got the Bill Maher show that night, so that'll be a lot of fun. I want the team watching, rooting for me as much as you can. Uh, I know some of you have a hard time stomaching watching leftists jeer and freak out at me, but I'll be all right. And I hope you all have a fantastic weekend. We are going to have quite a year here in the Freedom Hut. So much stuff is going to be coming our way with this election and everything else going on. So rest up, refit, get ready for it. Have a great weekend, everybody. Shields high.